Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hey, hey, we made it to episode 23. I can't believe it. When we started this endeavor, Andy was younger, Philippe was single, and I was about 20 pounds lighter. This one is special because in 1985, Andy arrived permanently in Kansas City. He tells a fantastic story about trying to sell adult league indoor soccer during the 1985 World Series, the first of two World Series championships for the Royals. And the 80s was full of the Kansas City Comets, light shows, sold-out arenas. It was a heyday for the fast-paced, high-octane action. But it wasn't the big leagues. Then in 1994, the World Cup came to the United States. By this time, my family was head over heels for the game. My dad had a USA 94 hat and the matching T-shirt to go along with it. My grandpa, born in 1916, lived through the Great Depression, served during World War II, raised his three boys on fate. Uh, baseball, football, and skipped over basketball because Clifton's were always too short. And he had a Swiss World Cup 1994 hat and wore it proudly until his death in, in 2009. I remember setting, uh, getting mail about the U.S. Soccer League yet to come in 1995. And Kansas City made the short list of the, name, of the cities named to have a team. My dad tried to temper my expectations and explained to me that we might not end up with a team, son. Then in 1995, I was 11, it was announced we'd have a team, the KC Wiz. For a brief moment, our enthusiasm uh, uh, went to crap because the name was the KC Wiz. What the hell is a Wiz even? But then it came back. 1996 was here. We went to the first KC Wiz game at Arrowhead. And Kansas City soccer started to rise and rise and rise. We have the second highest participation rate per capita in the United States for youth soccer. But in 2022, it was announced that we would be hosting World Cup games in 2026. Andy, that's got to feel like an absolute shot out of the dark when you arrived in 1985. If I'd have told you, hey, in a few years, in your lifetime, assuming you make it four more years, we'll be hosting a World Cup game in Kansas City. It's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I've got a memory of 1966, England. I was eight years of age. And my, my dad had taken us to Ramsgate, uh, you know, which is a seaside town on the English Channel. And it's on the other side of London from Oxford. So we had to go back through London to get to Oxford on the day we won the World Cup. And there were fans all over the city you know, everybody was out, you know, and, you know, they, you know, they were driving around tooting their horns and, you know, and everybody was wearing, you know, England regalia. And, and it was a massive, massive event, you know, that lifted the spirits of the whole country in a way that probably nothing had lifted the spirits, you know, since, you know, World War Two, you know, and, and, you know, Victory Day after World War Two. You know, and, and I'll never forget the euphoria that ran through the country and what it meant to the country, you know, to win the World Cup. It was just incredible. And, and to, to have experienced that as a kid, I think that really motivated me for the rest of my life. Well, now all of the people in Kansas City that I know and love are going to have the experience of having a World Cup in Kansas City. And already my nephew has said, you know, hey, do you have a room for me? 
I'm here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get tickets. I've felded a, uh, <laughs> fielded a few of those same texts. <laughs> right. You know, so, and he lives in Sheffield, England. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, he's coming all the way here because he wants to watch games in Kansas City. So the excitement isn't purely localized. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, being felt probably all around the world with anybody that has a relative or an acquaintance in another country. You know, they're probably wanting to be in Kansas City watching World Cup games if they've got any interest in the game. And you've got, I mean, you're old, right? But you're you're now going to exist (laughs) in the home country for the World Cup for a third time two United States, one England. You, I bet your dad never would have guessed that. Um, my, my son will live in the country that hosts the World Cup three times, and two of those will be the United I'm States. I'm really glad you changed. You, know, you said you're now going to exist originally, and then you changed it to live, because I'd like to think that I'm still living, <laughs> not, not just existing. <laughs> well, uh, uh, neither of us have had our home city uh, host a World Cup before, um, this will be a first for us in four years. But, Philippe, you have been from Rio. Were you in Rio during the World Cup? I definitely was. And and is Kansas City going to be anything like Rio circa 2014? <sighs> I don't believe so, but I'll tell you what, it's going to be a blast. Uh, the way that the World Cup, obviously I'm from Brazil, and the culture of soccer is bigger there. I mean, the host country literally stops for the month before and during the World Cup and that hangover for the next couple of weeks. It literally the country stops and everybody is only talking about that and the nationalist uh, feeling uh, from every person. Everybody really feels Brazilian and embraces the team and you know expects all that and it's just party all the time and it's, it's just crazy. And in Rio, you know, we had the final and we had obviously the some of the better games of the the tournament and it's the most attractive city to the tourists as well so like we literally you know had thousands and thousands probably I, I don't know even hundreds of thousands of tourists in Rio and just all over the city and people from all over and it was fun because every week uh, different games you know and so different people from different countries coming and staying it's just a blast, and I think that's going to bring so much attention to soccer, and it's going to arise the interest of many people, sports fans in general, seeing that you know all the sports fans, they're American. They're not just supporting their, their city team. They're supporting the country, so the whole country is going to come together. Everybody that likes sports will follow, you know, will be interested, and, you know, the kids sons of these people they're going to be interested in the game you know so i mean it's I, I feel inadequate I, I do i listen to philippe and describing the brazilian approach to the world cup you know and it makes me envious you know the, the very emotion i hope never to feel i feel immediately he starts describing <laughs> brazil and soccer and the world cup you know it's straight away there's almost like this you know this whole completely different carnival atmosphere to to the game that you know that is just Brazilian and very uniquely Brazilian. Well, I mean, like when England leads into a World Cup, there's excitement, but there's always this panic that we're going to mess it all up, and there's this negative feeling that goes along with the excitement. Correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> Green Street hoodlums type of you know uh, you know. There's always this you know. There's going to be you know extreme violence, and you know something's going to you know people are going to be throwing bottles of beer at each other from across restaurants, and you know there's always this you know like negative, and I just never feel that. 
you know, that's even a possibility because everybody's partying in Brazil, you know, and it's a whole celebration sure. in a way that, you know, is welcoming rather than fearful. It, yeah. it only happened when Argentina lost the final. Then they destroyed the whole city. It was absolutely awful. <laughs> they literally tried to destroy the whole Maracanã Stadium and the surroundings because when Argentina made the final, Argentina has a border with the south of Brazil. It's probably like a 60-hour drive from <laughs> like Buenos Aires to Rio. And these people are jumping in buses and like no tickets, no hotel, no money, no anything. It's Argentina. It just come because in South America, you can transit freely from one country to the other. Uh, you don't need a visa or anything. So just like buses and buses and buses full of Argentinian people. People sleeping on the streets. Just it's the passion, the soccer passion. You know, this, but obviously these people, they're that crazy to go to another country with no money, no place to stay, just to see their country play in a World Cup final. Not even having a ticket, of course, they're also mentally unstable when they lose. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Just because they're Argentinians, you're saying <laughs> and that. They also, and they're also from that place. Hey, that, you know. yeah, talking about Argentina, Tina, and, and did you see that Maradona, you know, I'm talking about you know, coming back from beyond the grave. You know, a, a whole bunch of people have just been charged with homicide over his death. I mean, this guy won't die. <laughs> he just won't <laughs> go away. He won't go away. <laughs> go you know, away. Yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that apparently attended to him as he was dying yeah. that have actually been accused of homicide. They're going to face charges now. There's going to be a court case. You know, <laughs> That's you know, so we're, we're going to see this uh, this dog and pony show, you know, this whole drama. Play out. Play out, you know, and the guy just won't go away. You know, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. He was a nightmare for me in 1986. and. Ooh. You know, he, he just won't disappear. Well, coming back to the World Cup as we transition into the youth discussion that we want to have, like, I remember, I mean, distinctly, and I kind of did it in the open, like, I, I remember the 1994 World Cup. I have very vivid memories of the 1994 World Cup. And, like, I wanted to illustrate, like, even my grandpa, who doesn't care about soccer at all, was engaged in the 1994 World Cup. And, and, and but it's different now. Like, U.S. soccer, or soccer in the United States is, 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 is seen differently by the broader United States. I, I imagine in 1989 or 1990, when they announced the World Cup was coming to Kansas City, it was a back page bit of the newspaper. It wasn't a part of social media. There weren't numerous people that aren't soccer fans posting on Facebook about how excited they were that the World Cup was coming to Kansas City. Um, and, and, and I mean, another example is I've got a good buddy who's gone to four World Cups. He went in 2006 to Germany, 2010 to South Africa, 2014 to Brazil, and 2018 to Russia. And he talks often about in 2006 in Germany, there were hardly any Americans there. But 2010, 2014, and even 2018, it was flooded with Americans that were traveling to the World Cup because they were so excited and engaged. But the 1994 World Cup was a pivotal moment for me and other people of my generation that played the game at the time, and it truly served a, 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 a giant motivational aspect for being engaged with the game on a broader sense. And, it, and what it did for me won't even scratch the surface of what it's going to do for my own kids who will be 12 and 15 during the next World Cup, or even the generation or the kids a few years behind them, what it'll do for them in terms of enthusiasm and excitement, and not just in Kansas City, 
but in all those rural towns in Missouri and Kansas, right? In Minnesota, in Chicago, and everywhere else across the United States. And I think that's what's kind of exciting and hard to predict what what the next eight to 12 years will look like for soccer culture in the United States. It's, it's going to be huge. I and, think and it's going to explode. Especially huge for Kansas City. Uh, but one of the things that, uh, that most people probably don't realize and, you know, might be thinking about for the first time now is, is uh, you know, why does a city the size of Kansas City with approximately two million people in the metropolitan area, why does Kansas City get the World Cup when the next smallest city is Seattle with over four million population? And then the other cities only go up from there, you know, to, you know, massive populations. So here we've got, you know, the smallest city by far that is going to host the World Cup. You know, any theories in that direction? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've had professional soccer consistently since the 60s. Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, we had the Spurs in the 60s and, you know, yeah. and, and that, you know, like a whole bunch of other cities around the country that had that professional game back in the 60s, that kind of kicked off, um, you know, the foreign players coming to Kansas City because U.S. players at that point in time, you know, were in general not good enough to play in a, in a soccer league, a pro soccer league. So these teams were virtually totally foreigners, you know, and, and so they then moved into the communities around the country and began coaching in the communities around the country. You know, but Kansas City wasn't the only city of its size, you know, that had a pro league in the 60s, you know, and had an MISL team, you know, later on. And smaller cities like, you know, Wichita and Tulsa had professional teams, you know, during, you know, that era, you know. So, you know, why did Kansas City become this uh, soccer central, if you like, you know, for... As long as I can remember, Kansas City had the highest number of registered soccer players, you know, and uh, never been outside the top two in terms of the highest number of registered soccer players per capita of any city in the United States. You know, and, you know, why has this occurred? I mean, I think it has to be connected to the professional game. Though, right? The Spurs of the 60s, but then the Comets in the 80s were giant, and none of those guys made enough. They had to coach in the community, and supply drives demand, right? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the reasons, is that, you know, that they, they needed to get out and make extra money because they were paid relatively a pittance compared to pro players in other countries, you know, and so they coached in the community, you know, and many of them are friends of mine and many of them, you know, we coached against each other, you know, and it was a necessity to pad the family budget to get out and actually do some coaching. Yeah. So, yeah, that was definitely a contributing factor. And without the Comets being in Kansas City, you wouldn't be in Kansas City, regardless of whether you played for the Comets or not, right? Because All-American Indoor Sports and the entire indoor apparatus that brought you here and that eventually birthed British soccer was, wouldn't have been here without a professional indoor team in Kansas well, City. Well, the owner of the Comets was the, own, the major financial investor and owner of All-American Indoor Sports you know, that brought me here. You know, so, you know, that's 100 percent true, you know, that, you know, those, you know, at one point in time, we had two indoor soccer and sports malls here in Kansas City, another one in St. Louis. Uh, and, you know, and it, it was one of the, you know, the reasons that the game, the indoor game, you know, exploded from a participation standpoint back in the day because, you know, they were, you know, quote unquote, state of the art facilities built from the ground up. Well, and another reason might have been because even during the seventh inning stretch of the 1985 World Cup, 
World Series, Homeboy was working the phones trying to convince people to sign up for a fun and frolic adult league can, at All-American. Can, can, you, can you show me a little bit more respect than to call me Homeboy? <laughs> that is actually, I'm 64 I can't years. think of a more respectful term than that. I'm 64 years old. Nobody has called me Homeboy in my life before. <laughs> you know, it's, it's endearing, it. I promise. <laughs> I refer to my kids that way, too. <laughs> But, but, you know, so you know, the pro game, like, you know, another, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 cities around North America, yes, it had an influence. Uh, one of the things that uh, had a major influence was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been here a few months and I'd already set up a camp company that, uh, that went into a few states, mostly East Coast and Southern states. And, you know, and I went to, you know, the, the ownership of, you know, All American Indoor Sports and I said, do you want me to set up a camp company? You know, and they said, sure. And I said, you know, what name do you want me to use? And they said, well, you know, why don't we call it All American, just like our indoor facilities? You know, and within a year, we changed that to British soccer camps. And over the next couple of decades, it became the largest camp company in the world. And what that meant was that we were importing just for the summer, you know, after a few years, hundreds of coaches to coach all over the USA and they would all fly into Kansas City. There would be a big orientation meeting, and then we would send them out, you know, via you know, trains, planes, and automobiles. We'd send them out all over the country to run camps, you know, and you know they would go and run camps. You know, in general, did a great job. You know, some of them got a little crazy in their social hours, but you know, it was a great experience for them and a great experience for the local community. And that just exploded, and you know, it 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 brought. Every summer, into Kansas City, some really highly qualified coaches, most of whom had phys ed degrees, had at least a football association prelim badge, you know, and many of whom were actually active teachers, just coming over to coach during their summer vacation, you know, and and uh, you know when they were off school, they wanted to have adventures, you know, and so so Kansas City became the jumping off point, and then we had a post camp meeting where we would do a post-mortem on the camps and you know, we'd decide what improvements we needed to make for next year. So they were coming into Kansas City, going around the rest of the country, coming back to Kansas City before flying back to England. And let me jump in here, let me guess, right? Because we've all, when we were in our younger years, had those summertime loves where you, you find a crush and you kind of fall in love with her. And then summer's over and you disappear. But these Brits with those fancy accents, right before they left Kansas City, found a summertime love and many of them stayed. That's, that's exactly right, you know, and... and uh, you know, many of them, you know, found a summertime love, but, you know, they, you know, they had an extremely fun experience and, you know, they just really enjoyed, you know, the, the atmosphere. It was kind of a fantasy for a whole summer coaching the game you love and, you know, meeting people that were fascinated with your accent and fascinated by this new game. And, you know, and in those days, the coaches wore extremely short shorts and got a tan pretty quickly. And, you know, and so they were, uh, you know, <laughs> good looking guys that, you know, that, kind of made an impact on their communities for a week or two that they were going to around the country. And, uh, and you know, and it, it you know, had some fantastic, you know, impact all over the country in terms of helping the game to blossom and grow and explode, you know. And, but the main beneficiary was Kansas City because, 
you know, they, they kicked off from here. They left from here at the end of, you know, multiple weeks. And many coached in the surrounding states here and were coming back to Kansas City every week or two to pick up new boxes of T-shirts and recharge their batteries between camps and things of that nature. And, and so, you know, before we knew it, there were, you know, British coaches just all over this community, but not just anybody with a British accent. These were phys ed teachers you know, these were, you know, pretty good players that could really demonstrate the skills, you know, and, you know, that they, they played to a high level, at least, you know, probably semi-pro, you know, in Britain. And, you know, it, it added to the professional player base of coaching in the community. And when you were growing up, you know, we had opponents and every one of our opponents either had an ex-Comets player or, you know, a British soccer camp coach you know, that was coaching their team on a year-round basis. And, and so very quickly, Kansas City, that was a backwater and was always way down the pecking order compared to St. Louis, very quickly we became competitive with St. Louis. You know, and from that point onwards, you know, we've had a very good statistical record. I'm talking about we being the youth soccer community of Kansas City. We can go all over the country and... We come out punching above our weight, you know, for a similar city like Indianapolis, Kansas City has, and I've done the math on this, has been massively more successful on a national level, like, you know, instead of like Indianapolis or Cincinnati, Columbus, Ohio, similar size cities, we've punched massively above our weight. And Kansas City has been the home to more national organizations simply because these people that loved the game wanted to stay involved in the game. So national indoor championship, super clubs, national championship, uh, you know, U.S. futsal, uh, you know, obviously United Soccer Coaches Association is based here. The NAIA, the largest Hispanic organization in the, in the world, the semi-pro Hispanic organization is, is based here. And the list goes on and on and on because people that had great knowledge in an embryonic game, you know, wanted to make their career and came up with wonderful ideas. You know, our organization, Happy, you know, Happy Feet Legends International, you know, on four continents around the world, you know, and there's no other city in the world that, you know, has this type of, um, if you like, immersion in the game. And of course, we've now got the, uh, the National Training Center, you know, and then Sporting Kansas City, originally the Wizards or the Wiz, um, and, you know, you know, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. And now with the Casey Current, you know, they've just opened the first purpose-built training center for women's soccer. It's gorgeous. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And they're going to build a purpose-built stadium that looks, according to the plans, you know, just new age and just brilliant. And so still pioneering after all these years, Kansas City is still out in the forefront of the game. And once again, getting the World Cup is punching above its weight, but maybe not punching above its weight because of everything now that's occurred ever since I came into Kansas City you know, in 1985 when it was somewhat of a backwater. And one other stat, Kansas City is the home to more full-size turf fields than any other city in the world per capita by a country mile. So, you know, we literally in Kansas City never have to play on grass anymore because we've got so many turf fields, huge complexes, as well as, you know, individual high school, college fields. You know, there are turf fields everywhere in Kansas City 
and more and more are being built. You know, Kansas City has been the home, I think, about 30, 40% of the time for the US YSA national championships because our big complexes are so beautiful and the infrastructure is here straight away. So, you know, we're being picked for so many events. And as most coaches know, Kansas City every four years is the home for the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, that's you know, a permanent four-year rotation that has been going now for decades. Yep. You know, so Kansas City is just soccer central. You know, it's not just central USA. You know, it really is a, a massive, massive soccer community with an incredibly educated coaching population. And parents don't know how lucky they are growing up in Kansas City because the coaching populations and having run the National Indoor Championship, having been the president of the National Indoor Soccer Council, having been run super clubs in North America, there is no coaching population around the country that has the level of qualification, level of experience as the Kansas City coaching population. I mean, 15 years ago, I turned up, 20 years ago maybe, I turned up to coach a game at... uh, at Heritage Park before you know some of these big other beautiful complexes were built. And I'm coaching against Ron Newman. He's coaching his grandson's <laughs> team. You know, and he, you know, he's just retired as the Wizards Philippe coach. doesn't know who Ron Newman is, but yeah, I do. The, the, you know, the, the lord of all indoors, you know, yeah. you know, coach from San Diego soccer's fame. And you know, I'm just a legendary name who finished his coaching career with the Wizards. Well, you it know. started with the Wiz. He was the he was the inaugural uh, Casey well, Wiz. The name coach. of the cup on the MASL is, is Ron, Ron Newman. Newman. That's cup. the that yeah. Andy's coached against him. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's funny, but you know, we're coaching like under ten, under eleven youth <laughs> soccer. You know, and, uh, and and you know that's the type of quality that that we've had, and you know, and like Vladko Andonovsky, the current U.S. national team coach uh, for the women. You know, and uh, he's been coaching in Kansas City for mm-hmm. years. You know, and, you know, the kids here are spoiled, you know, but they just don't understand how spoiled they are. Sure. You know, sure. It's, it's an amazing city for soccer. Well, um, it, we promised this wasn't just an ad for Kansas City as a whole. We wanted to kind of, one, express some excitement, two, answer those critics that are wondering why Kansas City for the World Cup, but, but three, jump into what's going to be kind of a series of episodes where we look at um, uh, stars of World Cup past – um, and uh, look at some of their development, not just what they did in the cup, but uh, look at some of their, their, their history and, and, and where they came from in terms of how they developed, what made them special. And then we're going to kind of inter, intertwine, weave into those discussions, um, discussions about specifically our coaching philosophy and why we coach the way we do. Um, and it's not just random and it's not because it sounds good, but because we believe it connects um, with the uh, with the the greatest number of World Cup stars um, and the way that they grew up playing the game. Is that a fair introduction to kind of the plan, Philippe? That's a very good introduction. And so <laughs> this was kind of a fun text group we had this week because we were kind of like brainstorming World Cup stars of, of World Cup past. And um, there was an interesting text where Philippe was like, oh, we got to add this guy and this guy and this guy. And Andy goes... They're all Brazilians. You're not a bit biased, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Which was and not one Argentine. No, no. He did throw throw one Argentinian there, but I think it was almost just like as like an afterthought. Like uh, this makes me not look biased. No, my, Maradona is one of my favorite players of all time. It's I, I I'm not that biased, and I I love I love other Argentina players like Riquelme. 
was my favorite players to watch growing up. He killed it every time he put a Boca Juniors jersey um, or even Argentina. I mean, it's just unbelievable watching him play. It was like Z Zidane's version in South America, to be honest with you. And, I mean, he did well in Villarreal and Barcelona a little bit, but, I mean, he just loved playing for Boca. So I'm not that, that, that biased. It's just, I mean, Brazil has won four, five, five World Cups. I, I lost count, so it's 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 hard not to oh. to, to get Brazil. You want to vomit, you know? You know? I mean, I mean, talk about rubbing your nose in it. I lost count. You I know, mean, seven you know. seven finals, yeah. probably like There's ten poor semifinals. People from other countries, <laughs> only country that played in every single yeah. one World Cup. So yeah. just right there, you ha we have more but players that played well, World Philippe, Cup. Philippe, you're just counting. England was too good to play in the World Cup until what 1966 yeah. or whatever it is that they chose. Yeah, Maybe that, that, that wasn't the case, was it? They found well, they seem to think they, started, they were. Yeah, <laughs> they started to play in the World Cup and they realized they weren't as good as they thought they were. And is, even is there any way we can get somebody to replace Philippe on this pod? You know, he's just like looking down on the rest of us. And you go, you go to <laughs> Italy, they're one of their best players, Jorginho, he's Brazilian. You go to uh, Spain, one of their better players, Thiago Contra, Brazilian. You go to Portugal, they always have three starters that are from Brazil. So, you know, it's... Okay, guys, I'm done. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> well, um, well, you know, as we, as we look at, as we look at, and we've done this numerous times on the podcast, and we're going to do it many more times to come, because we are so passionate about the approach of, of uh, not the approach, but the gifts that, that unorganized street games provide for players right the street soccer culture provides for players and 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 that's that's been a a bedrock a pillar of 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 how how we as a as a club and as coaches have organized our structure for training um is 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 in this organized street soccer fashion right and organized street soccer really provides this dribbling or quick penetrating passing and shooting um, uh, in environment, but when you look at this, I mean, this World Cup list of players, if you go back into all of them, they, they had this origination, this start, and this fascination and this love with the ball. And so Andy's going to get academic here for a second because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tee you up. <laughs> I want to talk I'm, about... I'm going to get... I'm not going to get academic, you know, well, because... You, you don't know, know what I question was, I'm asking. I was... Well, hold on to your question because... He already you know, has I'm, something to I'm, say. I, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta tell this story. You know, the other night I was, I was in a meeting where uh, two of our coaches were persuading the parents uh, on their team uh, to invest in a VO, you know, camera, you know, so they could capture highlights and, you know, and, you know, do some post game, you know, analysis. And uh, and they were talking about all the things that VO would measure, you know, that you know just by putting a a sensor in a kid's shoe, you know, and you know, I'm literally. You know, the VO camera would, you know, me measure the density of a player's stool. <laughs> it was it was just incredible. The list of How things. How does it do that, though? <laughs> 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 Let's not go there. It's a dark subject. Uh, <laughs> so, Little Johnny, your poop was fantastic this week. <laughs> but, but the irony is that you know, we're getting so many stats and it's taking away the focus on what's really important, which is creativity. You cannot measure art, you know. 
you can't specifically measure it, but I will say that the Veo cameras and the taste trace cameras that our teams have used, that many of our teams have used in the club, have been fantastic <laughs> to document the truly unreal highlights that come from the creative players right. that have developed within our creative street soccer fast-paced environment. And that should be the only selling point and period. That's all that matters. It's the motivational that is the real value from those cameras. You know, if you know, and I, I found this out with, with Holly, my daughter, because, you know, I'd coached her all these years and there'd been some incredible highlights, you know, but once they were done, they were done. Nobody recorded it. You know, it wasn't, you know, for posterity. You know, it wasn't something she could go back to, you know, let alone show her grandkids when she's old and gray. You know, and so when she started playing high school, you know, I pulled out my phone and I started learning how to videotape on the fly, her doing moves and scoring goals and stuff. And within a few games, she'd get in the car and she'd snap her fingers at me and say, get phone, please. You know, <laughs> and she was looking at her highlights, you know, and she would delete all the ones that she screwed up on, you know, and she would dwell on the beauty of her drag Maradona turn and a goal she scored from 25 yards. She'd watch it again and again and again. And it was incredibly reinforcing. And she started to take off in terms of her willingness to take risks and do things that were truly beautiful, things that you can't quantify, you can't measure you know, it's not statistical. It's the equivalent of, of Picasso or, or Rembrandt, you know, or Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's art, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't actually, you know, uh, put a, a quantifiable judgment to it. You know, all you can do is say, wow, like Diego Maradona's goal against England in 1986. You know, you, you just sit there in absolute open-mouthed awe of, of something that beautiful. Well... It motivated her no end, you know, and that's what we're dealing with here is, you know, we're dealing with the World Cups that go back and back and back. And so many of them in crucial moments have been decided by things you cannot measure. You know, Diego Maradona's goal in 1986 being one of the classic examples, you know, and, and Ronaldinho playing against England and attacking down the middle and doing a double scissors and drawing a defender and sliding the ball off to Ronaldo. Rivaldo. Rivaldo uh, for that goal, you know, and you, know, you just can't measure this stuff, you know, because it, it's something so unique and so beautiful. It only happens once, but it's seared into your memory because it's exceptional. And so where does that exception come from? Like where is, where is, and let's step away from soccer for a moment, but look, just look at like human, human society. Where does the exceptional, the rule breakers, where do they come from? What develops that? Or is it just innate? Yeah, you know, it's, and this is one of the most intriguing things because all of the great ones, you look, and I'm talking the great ones in life. Yes. You know, you, you look at, their background and you look at you know w the way in which they were brought up and and I'm reading a great book by Cristina Di Stefano which you know shares a, a you know, last name with one of the greatest players of all time you know Alfredo Di Stefano no relation though no relation though and uh, you know she wrote about Maria Montessori and it goes into you know the Montessori uh, you know um, educational system but it, it evaluates Maria Montessori's background and she was an incredibly swim upstream 
Um, you know, uh, just go against the conventions of the day. You know, she was a powerful woman in a day where women weren't supposed to be powerful. And she had to deal with an amazing amount of prejudice, you know, in order to, you know, rise above, you know, the, the rest of the poppies in the field, you know, to use a, you know, a poppy field complex analogy. And, uh, you know, she became um, the, uh, you know, how do you train a child to be an expert in anything? Well, you watch the child and then you cater the, to the child's uh, abilities, you know, their sense of beauty, their sense of art, you know, and their sense of fascination. And, you know, you have to work with the child instead of rote, you know, just chanting the child into learning English. You know, work with them in ways to foster their imagination so that they want to read books, you know, so they fall in love with the art of reading, if you like, and the art of writing, you know. And, and so she approached education in a way that had never been approached before in order to create incredible whatever, doctors, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, scientists, you know, and, and uh, working with what the kid had. And she learned a big chunk of it through working with special ed kids, you know, because you had to be very creative about finding with kids that had autism, finding what it is that trips that child's switch. You know, and I was going to go into special ed uh, as a career. That was my minor in college. And it was a fascinating subject because many people that we perceive as handicapped have actually got a massive advantage, albeit in a very narrow area. You know, they're not actually handicapped. They're actually superior to the rest of us in the way that they see things. Dyslexia being one, for example. Dyslexics are much more creative than we are, you know, as quote-unquote, you know, not handicapped people, you know, and many dyslexics have been incredibly successful. Well, how do we foster creativity in soccer? How do we make players you know, artistic. Let creative. me talk about let me talk about Maria Montessori and then come to that question. Okay. Answer that question that you said. So, for those of you that aren't aware of of Montessori or the Montessori approach, the Montessori educational uh, perspective, it's most prevalent in preschools, but it exists in 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 older schools as well. But Montessori schools or Montessori approach is centered around really child led education. There's less of a of an adult or an instructor structure to the sessions and the kids you know obviously you know they're safe they're safe within the classroom but they're able to explore what is most interesting to them and the teacher instead of instructing them to go left or right comes alongside aside them and uh, comes alongside them and helps them to explore the the specific things that are interesting to them A, a play to learn approach is probably the best approach and and I think the best way to describe it and I think the play to learn and that specific term best connects with the way we to- to- coach the game or teach the game and it's funny to say teach the game right many of what we do as coaches is we create the environment and then step back from that but this play to learn approach whether it's in the Montessori um, uh, paradigm or whether it's Richard Branson and his parents you know just going and dropping him off miles from home and saying good luck kid find your way home when you give kids the opportunity to explore 
to make mistakes, to go down the road that they want to go. You, 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 you key into, you trip a switch within them that motivates them and inspires them to do something and look at things differently and create from there. And that approach is one that, that, that moves society forward as opposed to a structured, rigid approach that keeps us exactly where we are. Yeah, and, and most people don't even understand what a Montessori classroom, a true Montessori classroom looks like. Now, part of the you know, early childhood industry claims to be Montessori, yeah. but you walk into their classrooms and, and they don't look like you know, Montessori classrooms. And what a Montessori classroom looks like is organized chaos. You know, it's, it's, there's bookcases and bookcases of all sorts of uh, you know, fun, challenging you know, you know, young child toys, you know, for, you know, kids to experiment with and, you know, just just play with and, and think about and delve into, you know, and have adventures with, you know, on a daily basis, you know, and you know, I was brought up in, you know, the, the three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic, which I think you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, um, arithmetic you know it's it's not really an r but it's you know pronounced arithmetic and the a is almost silent so they call it the three r's and uh and the english invented the language and the americans perfected it and yeah and invented it and, and to a greater degree butchered it over time you know in so many ways but but uh, you know so you know we were brought up in you know you know a b c d e f g you know chanting you know till we learned our letters you know and you know, it was a very non-creative way of learning in general, you know, which was very authoritarian, teacher at the front of the room, and, you know, if you were caught chatting, you know, you'd, you'd literally get a piece of chalk in, in your head, you know. <laughs> Just, so, so it was a very interesting environment because it was kind of intimidating, you know, and it was very structured and very regimented, you know, and I hated it. I just did not like school. You know, and I was a very poor student until I got to phys ed school, scraped in a phys ed school, you know, and then I loved it. And I, you know, and I got great grades in phys ed school because this was my thing. You know, but we talk about how culture culture, you know, is pervasive within an entire society and 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 how it how it, you know, forces itself on sports. But you talk about this really structured authoritarian classroom that you existed in. I'd be pretty sure to bet that the soccer field in which you trained in and during those exact same years was also really structured and authoritarian with a ton of cones all about the field and very rigid structure approach to teaching the game and, and the way the, the way the game was expected to be played by the kids well yeah you know and and I think we were lucky because you know in Quarry Road was my youth club that I, I later began my coaching career when I was 16 uh, my coach was a guy called Dick Folds who was well known to be a good youth coach you know and he spent a lot of time on technique but it wasn't creative technique you know, we didn't do a really, lo you know, a lot of stuff on dribbling Drive a long ball as far as you can <laughs> down the field. There, there was a lot of passing and receiving. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, you know, it was a lot of receiving with your thigh, with your chest, and, you know, a lot of passing, you know, back and forth, you know. and The soccer version of chance. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it was, uh, you know, to a greater degree, it was boring. The one thing that I absolutely loved is when the weather got bad outside during the winter, we had a little World War II gymnasium. Uh, that we used, and we used to play three-on-three three with benches on their side as goals, you know, and that was absolutely a blast, you know, and that improved my game many times, you know, to a greater degree than, than you know, 
receiving the ball on my chest and dropping it to my foot and passing it back to the server to be served again another one to receive you know that rote learning way of of learning the game you know didn't motivate me didn't trip my you know didn't make me fall in love with the game you know and the three on three I could have played till the cows came out I could have stayed there all night long playing three on three you know because it was just and we ended up winning the uh, under 12 five aside uh, competition that was held in Oxford like the with a real ball version of, of futsal you know, we were champions at under 12, and that was all based on playing three-on-three on, three on such a continuous basis. And we were always, you know, in the top two or three of the league, and there was probably about 20 youth teams in the league, you know, and it was all based around our ability on three-on-three on three and transferring that into the game situation. As I look back, you know, it wasn't because we spent hours controlling the ball with our chest. You know, sure. It was what we did ground-based, creatively, under pressure in small spaces. But you said something that I'm gonna, I want to go to Philippe uh, with this segue. You said that if we'd have played, I could have played 3v3 all day long until the cows came home, right? Like your love for that activity was one that motivated and inspired you in part because you're playing, but also in part probably because there's somewhat lack of a structure there. I was reading up on Mbappe's biography, again, Mbappe being a very recent World Cup star for France in 2018. And his dad specifically mentioned his fascination and love for the game meant that that's all he did all day, every day was play and play and play and play. And he specific, his dad specifically used the term play, not train, not structured environment, but playing. And that's where he facilitated this unbelievable ability that Mbappe has for one, clinical finishing, but two, tight, fast, fast dribbling. Um, uh, so, Philippe, how does that connect with kind of how you see the game? Well, I'm going to say something that goes against myself, uh, in a sense, because I do some private sessions with kids. But you look at all the list of players in World Cups, you don't hear anybody talking about their childhood saying, oh, I did a ton of private sessions. I trained a ton with coaches. I trained a lot doing this, the blah, blah. They constantly mention the word play. I played a lot on the streets. I went down on the streets and played. I went to this place and played. I played, I played, I played, I played. I played. No coaches, no structure, just free play with competition with kids around the same age or younger or older, you know, and they just played. I think that's that 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 shows a lot. These players are creative, they're disruptive, they're the ones that are doing things that coaches would probably tell them not to try. And they are doing at the highest level of play because they grew up doing them and nobody there telling them not to do them. And I think that's that's a lesson. Not saying that private sessions or training is bad by no means. I think it's the substitute that is very necessary due to the culture we live in because you're not going to get a kid in KC metro area and, you know, just after school they just go on the streets and they just play until dark. That's just not the reality of the world we live in in, in this century. And even if you go... Nowadays, even to some areas of Brazil, you see parents that won't let their kids do that due to violence and that kind of stuff. Still, the best players, they still coming from the poor areas because they do that. They have that. So I think that's the, that's the lesson here. I think what we try to do in our club is to provide kids that's that are structured 
unstructured that uh, as organized chaos organized chaos as Andy likes to say um, it's it's what's gonna make them the best not just good anybody can be good being the best is different so, so the, you know expanding on that the name of the book about Maria Montessori is the child is the teacher and this is the key here is what does the child do you have to watch the child so you know I backed up when I was a kid you know my my parents garden backed up to the recreation ground bull in the wreck and uh, I had the only ball in the neighborhood, so anybody wanted to play, they had to come and call on me. And, it was you know, thoughtful on your dad's part. Yeah, my, my dad was you know, crazy about soccer, and, and so uh, the culture, that's a huge thing. Uh, but you know, they came and called on me, and the first person to call on me, we'd go out onto the wreck, and what did we do? You know, did we just pass back and forth? They shot. They shot on each One other. One person went in goal. And the other person shot. My, boy, person. my boys do the exact same thing. Yeah, and we yep. played three and in. So, you know, the, the one person was keeping goal, and, you know, the person that was shooting, if they scored three, they went in goal. And, you know, or we, you know, put down four jerseys or whatever we could find to make posts, and we just shot back and forth, you know. And so, so uh, you know, we, you know, and then somebody else would turn up. And now, of course, it was one goalie and play one on one, you know. So now we're playing one on one. Somebody else turns up, and now we're playing two on two. You know, and somebody else would turn up, and now you're playing one goalie and two on two, and then somebody else you're playing three on three. You know, and it rarely got to be any more than maybe three on three, four on four. <coughs> but you know, there were your regulars like Stephen Bell and myself. We were always out there, and a whole bunch of other people would you know drop in and drop out, and you know, but we were the addicts. You know, we were always there playing it, and and so you know, the child is the teacher. You know, were we doing rondos? No. Were we passing the ball back and forth? Boring. You know, just, you know, we weren't doing that. You know, we were out there trying to beat a player in the one-on-one and trying to score great goals. So it's about dribbling and it's about finishing. And if you're a great finisher, you're a great passer, especially if you're doing it in a one-on-one and you're under pressure. You know, you're actually having to shoot the ball into the corner of the goal under pressure. That's the acid test of, of, of great players. They're the great finishers. So that's what the kids do. And yet coaches in this society in the main don't do that when the kids get to practice. It doesn't make any sense. Well, so, I mean, the, the, the verb play, uh, engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. Right. And, and, and like, I think about that and we talk about like world cup stars. We talk about, you know, Mbappe and we could go down the list, right? (laughs) through our long list of Brazilians, thanks to Philippe, we could go through that list and they all talk about in their youth, the play is the aspect of what connected them to the game and made them who they were. I was on Facebook yesterday and uh, a, a soccer mom here locally in Kansas City was bragging about her son and his summer regimen to, in the off season between you know the end of one club season before the start of the next and um, she listed it off and I mean it's every morning I think the kid's 14 every morning fitness he really wants to improve his speed and agility so he's doing fitness every morning and then he's doing some some personal training related specifically um, uh, to passing and shooting and it's like it's like eight hours a week devoted to that there is literally zero play in that zero in in this regimen in which but this is i think one of the the challenges that we have as a, as an american society related to 
sport culture in general, but we'll use soccer as our example, is that parents think that we need to take this academic approach, this structured environment approach to give our kids a leg up. And, and that's by definition, if you look at the biography, every, every one of these World Cup stars, exactly the opposite of what we need to do. We need to get our kids playing more in, in a less structured environment that encourages them to lead and because to play it, and to go for it. Because otherwise it's boring. They lose yeah, their 100%. passion of the game. They lose their willingness to work hard and all that. Even just to, even on the professional game in Brazil, it's a culture in Brazil since ever in soccer. The national team does that. The day before the game, it's small-sided game. The goalie is playing forward, the, f the midfielder is playing goalie, the coach is playing, the assistant coach is playing, and they're all just goofing around and having fun. The day before any game, World Cup final, and that's how in 2002 Emerson got cut from the World Cup because he was playing goalie and he broke his arm in the preseason in one of these days before the game. Uh, I play in uh, three and in, I bet. Yeah, so it's like it's... It's even for the professionals, they need the Brazilians. They need that fun play to keep them motivated. It's not in, they don't spend the day before the game boring two hours working on set pieces. Maybe they should because we got kicked out of some World Cups by set piece goal. But uh, well, yeah, they need that fun. Imagine kids; they need to be playing. Uh, Andy, you 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 mentioned in our our chat um, our chat as we prepared for this 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 pod that an axiom or universal truth of soccer is that the greatest players in world history, the greatest players of these world cups have been goal scorers and deceptive dribblers. Right. And like, I think we can make a direct connection to Maria Lanasori from that perspective, because what you just said about your youth, your childhood, when you know, kids had come calling and you took the ball out, you shot, and you dribbled. That's the approach that kids naturally take. And so it would make sense that our World Cup stars, the, uh, the best players, are the ones that did that to the greatest degree. Yeah, and th this pod is actually, you know, to, to clear things up, is actually about coaching philosophy. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're using the greatest players as examples of um, coaching philosophy. And, you know, and what was the coaching philosophy that led to these players being great? And there wasn't one. <laughs> and it, was more, it was environmental. It, well, you it know, was a philosophy on a lack of structure. It, it was cultural. It was environmental. It was like a natural leadership approach towards you know, conquering the most difficult skills in the game. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, but... You know, we've we've strayed away from uh, the value of uh, having uh, people be creative, you know, in order to measure something, you know, and to have a statistic. And I was watching uh, a, just a classic game between Barcelona and Real Madrid the other day, and Real Madrid had Zinedine Zidane, they had David Beckham, they had the original Ronaldo from Brazil. The, and the best one. Yeah, and and uh, Barcelona had Xavi, Iniesta, of course, Leo Messi, and Ronaldinho. You know, and you know, so you'd look at the, you know, the, you know, Beckham, eh, great passer, good free kick taker, you know, and but never really world class. You know, in my opinion, you know, world class looks obviously, and 
you know, world class wise. That's, that's what made his career, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> honestly. But, but, you know, he was, he was a pop star, wasn't he? You know, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, I, I mean, struck a ball very well. No, seriously, Real Madrid was <laughs> in between Ronald, when Ronaldinho was in PSG, they were between Ronaldinho and Beckham. Oh, really? And they yes, chose Beckham? Because they, he would sell more jerseys. Yeah. So, you know, and, and so they really had, you know, on the Real Madrid side, they had the original Ronaldo who struggled with injury and he looked in this game as though he was struggling a bit. You know, and Zidane, who, uh, you know, really was the only truly creative player during this game, you know, for Real Madrid. Barcelona wiped the floor with them, you know, with Iniesta, Xavi, Leo Messi, Ronaldinho. And Ronaldinho shouldn't be last in that list because he, I think, is pound for pound the most skillful player that ever played the game, you know. And so, you know, and and Barcelona just took Real Madrid apart, you know, absolutely start to finish, you know. And it was only two zero, I think, the final result, but it, it should have been ten, you know. And and so, you know, how do you develop a player like that? Because I'm not a great believer you just let him go out and play because I think back to the games of my youth and too often ended up in arguments and, you know, an occasional fistfight and, you know, and we wasted a lot of time doing things that weren't developmental. Well, you know, a coach can, with the right philosophy, make everything so much more beneficial by organizing the creativity, if you like. You know, so the practice has to be geared towards creativity. You know, a shooting, a deceptive dribbling practice, you know, it has to be transitional, goal to goal, you know, so that, you know, kids are challenged to penetrate when they've got the ball at their feet with moves and, and you know, take shots and learn how to bend the ball into the corner of the net and these things. But, you know, the coach can really add immense value and literally 10 times the developmental value of a practice if the coach has the right philosophy and the right organizational structure. But that's for another podcast. But, but if, if we were in the Brazilian culture, I don't know that I would entirely buy into the statement you just made. But in American culture, we have to have a coach to organize the environment that encourages kids to be creative and take risks and go for it and to play in the right structure because, and I've said this before in this, this pod, it's because parents in America are not going to go drop their kids off in urban Kansas City and say, I'll pick you up at eight, find a game to hop into. We have to create that for ourselves if we're going to create or, ha or have creative players develop here stateside. Um, and so it's it's an, it's a it's a it's a need. It's a must. It's a ha. It's something that we must have. But that's why it's so important for parents to find coaches that create environments and encourage kids to play and to be creative. Because if they don't do that, then they're going to end up in the most traditional or common training environment where kids are going to be playing in really a structured, rote way of learning the game. And and you know I'm going to pour a bucket of cold water all over. Philippe's head on this one, but you know, last World Cup that Brazil won was twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, and why is that? It, it you know, and and so Philippe, I think you know the answer to this, you know, and then, so what has happened in the last, you know, twenty, thirty years, maybe, you know, because, you know, we we got to look at the generation that was developing when Brazil last won their World Cup, and we got to say that something has gone wrong. What is it? I think there are many reasons, but I think after 2006, when we lost to France, um, that's when things started going south. We brought Dunga to 
bringing structure and that's not what we needed we didn't need structure in a sense of changing our way of play we needed more structure in a sense of the players being focused and you know taking it more seriously not you know 2006 all we all they did was commercials for nike and parties and you know advertising campaigns and they they weren't focused in the world cup so they got surprised against france but um, you were just saying before the episode that the new coach said uh, something that has you excited correct and and but that's what that's the transition that happened we started going backwards in a sense that oh we need to mimic the europeans in their tactical approach and you know more intensity defense and you know a more mature game and it, it's been proven that it's not true it's pro it, even if it was it's not what we're good at instead of focusing on your weaknesses you gotta focus on what makes you different what makes you better what took you to be a powerhouse that you are and that's what i think we're starting to realize now and you see more and more uh, brazilian wingers and brazilian forwards and brazilian attacking mids uh, coming along and he said one of the things he said uh, the Brazilian coach uh, which I'm not a big big fan of him but I like these two uh, things that he said one of was like I'm really happy I'm not concerned because if I pick wrong especially up front uh, if I pick the wrong player I'm picking right because they're all fantastic I have so many options yeah but are they huh? are they you know, are they I fantastic? I, I don't see that. I know? think I think this team right now that we have, uh, especially because they're young, they're really young. They're like 20, 21, and I think maybe this World Cup, some of them are still too young and are not going to be able to. But if they don't get into the same old habits that Ronaldinho, Adriano, and Ronaldo and all these guys did and their career were not, lasting like Messi, like Cristiano Ronaldo was, if they keep their focus, I think we have a bigger pool of talent than we've had in the last 10 years because I think we're realizing that we need the creativity back because just trying to play tactical soccer, it's not working. We're, we're not going to be more tactical than Europe. We're, it, we're it, just not. Here's the problem that Brazil has got. They've, they've come back to the group not all the way back to the group. They're still superior in terms of, you know, creativity. You know, their technical abilities are still, you know, to a certain degree superior. But, you know, Vinny Jr. probably is about the same age as Ronaldinho was in 2002 right now. You know, and, you know, Vinny Jr. is no Ronaldinho. I'm sorry. No, you know, not, he's no even not, not even close at the same age. You know, and, you know, and let's look at Neymar, you know, and, and uh, compare him with a Pele of the same age. You know, Pele had a massive impact on the Brazilian national team. And Neymar is no Pele in terms of the impact he has on the Brazilian national He's team. He's about to surpass Pele in number of goals for the Brazilian national That's team. That's because they, you know, play they, more. they just play more. And, and, you know, they play, you know, a lot of easy opposition in, in their international schedule. So it's not apples for apples. So Sure, but Pele had way more <coughs> talent to help him than Neymar has ever had. Well, and I guess that's my point is Neymar's creative, but he's creative in a show-off way. Pele was creative, but he was effective. You know, his moves beat players eight times out of ten. Neymar now is losing the ball, you know, eight times out of ten. You know, so, you know, he's, he's, he's skillful, but he's not focused skillful. You know, he hasn't limited it to the things that he knows works. 
he's just playing out there and experimenting. There comes a point where your coaching philosophy has to be, to a certain degree, creative and practical so that you know it works. You've got to have the best moves that you know are going to work in the game situation, not just leave the player up to, you know, to discover on their own you know, and, and waste a ton of time piddling around with the ball. You know, you've got to really have done the analysis so that you can um, augment the creativity with intelligent use of, of skill. You know, so that that skill is actually the best move for the situation you find your your way in, and you've been you've been trained in that situation and that skill until it's automatic and it works nine times out of ten, and that's what Neymar hasn't done. And Pele's skills used to work again and again and again. You know, and you know, look at the other players of that era. Rivellino's skills used to work again and again and again. And you know, all the way through those Brazilian teams, when they did a move, they worked. You back in the day. You know? We'll we'll have to take your word for it because we weren't alive to watch those games. <laughs> I actu- I actually uh, watched the World Cup final of 1970 the other day, and the amount of time that Rivellino and and Pelé lose the ball is they lose the ball a ton. They make a lot of mistakes. The thing is like they have the ball 97% of the time. So they're always trying. Who did they play in the final? Italy. <coughs> uh, I watch like literally every game of the World Cup. That Back in those days, w- they made mistakes too. It's just obviously when we watch the highlights, we don't see their mistakes. We watch, we watch their things that they did special. The thing is like... They would make the mistakes, but they would get the ball and they do it again. They do it again. They do it again. They were like legends players. They didn't care about making the mistakes, and you know it's it's and, just and a all different of them game. had an extra level of skill. You know, and, and that's what a lot of people don't realize is uh, you know in back you talk about the 1970 team, Carlos Alberto was fantastically skillful coming out of the back and you know, scored a great goal against Italy in the final. You know, and you know, you look at Brazilian teams through the years, and Roberto Carlos was just you know, incredible coming out of the back, and and uh, you know, Marcelo today, you know, just you know, he's getting close to retirement now, but you know, what a player, you know, the goals he scored, the goals he's created, you know, and so this is where Brazilian has the rest of the world. Brazilians have, you know, artists at right fullback, left fullback, centre back. You know, all over the field, they've got players that can produce that moment of pure beauty that's very effective, that opens up the defensive door and scores that one goal that wins them a game. And yeah. That's all it takes. You know, and other, other countries don't have enough depth of creativity, you know, to do that, to open up the defensive door and score that one goal that wins the game. You know, mm-hmm. England is horrible at doing that. You know, it's, it's, you know, whenever they get to play a good quality opponent it's very likely the opponent is going to beat them, you know, especially in a big game. I, thi- I think France this year is going to be, again, the top team. I, I mean, the, it, it, the sporting books are pointing Brazil, but I think France is ahead. I mean, but if you look at the current French players, so many of them grew up in the in the concrete jungles exactly. of, of, of of the French suburbs, and I mean suburbs, not in a positive yeah, the, way. The, the child is the teacher, you yes, know? so they, they yes, grew up playing one on one, two on two, three on three, and and creative experimentation. And this generation grew up seeing videos mm-hmm. of the great players doing moves, so they were able to emulate videos. It's not coaching based. You know, they just emulated their heroes and used those moves, 
you know, literally at the base of their apartment block in the, in the you know, the, the four-on-four field. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was tight, it was fast, it was transitional and creative. And, you know, that's where Mbappé learned the game. You know, that's where so many of the great French players learned to play the game in the outskirts of Paris, you know, in, in the immigrant communities. And and that's where that's where I think I mean we talk about this so much on this podcast, but that's where we as 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 coaches or parents that are listening to this podcast, that's where we have to get intelligent about looking for opportunities that 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 encourage that creative fast paced play and encourage mistakes, um, as opposed to continuing to look for really overly structured cone monsters. Um, right. And, you know, and going back to the purpose of this podcast, the coaching philosophy that you'll find here within the, you know, the, the legend soccer club is that, you know, we are uh, incredibly focused on um, an organized way of training, you know, out of the box creativity so that the opportunities to be creative and to conquer the more creative skills like shooting in our soccer boxes and you know our wall ball like the small sided games on our tiny you know game fields the maestro here, you maestro know the maestro skills. series of, of moves you know the best six moves in world history plus prefakes you know and you know, th- this is all out-of-the-box stuff. This has never been written about. It's never been covered before. Facilities like ours don't exist anywhere else in the world. You know, this is all completely out-of-the-box stuff. You know, and the coaching philosophy, which is the focus here, is like Maria Montessori's approach to child education. The child is the teacher. So what we've done is we've taken the proven methods of the great players, which didn't involve coaches. We've taken their, you know, their if you like their coaching philosophy, which was organic, you know, because they, it was all small sided games and it was just what they did because they, you know, it was fun to dribble and shoot. You know, these are, excuse the word, orgasmic moments. It's scoring a great goal and breaking somebody's ankles when you're playing the game are the highlight moments, the moments that make you scream with joy if you're a player, tear off your shirt and run around the field, you know, waving it around your head, you know. And so these are the things that kids love they're also the things that define the world's greatest players in history. Why wouldn't we be focusing on that as a coaching philosophy? Because we need to understand that the child is the teacher and the great players have always come from those environments. You know, look at the Ballon d'Or list and you do not see the journeyman, you know, hack somebody's ankles and give it to somebody else player listed on the Ballon d'Or list. You see all the great dribblers and goal scorers in history listed on that list. So... You know, we've got to have a philosophy that teaches that, that encourages it. It doesn't get too much in the way of it, just makes it more beneficial because no time is wasted on the fluff, the arguments that happen when things aren't organized, you know, the fist fights and, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the wasted time. Every minute of every practice has got to be spent in building that, that organized creativity, if you like, so that the ultimate benefits to the individual you know, not just in soccer, but in life and leadership, are manifold and massive. And they love doing it. They're motivated to be here instead of on their darn phones, you know, wait, you know, wasting their life watching reels. I see what you did there. The king of the non-segue just segued us perfectly into the next episode, which is we're going to talk about Legends for Life and specifically the leadership emphasis that this environment and this culture and this f- philosophy cultivates for players. Um, 
because it's not just about having a coaching philosophy that encourages creativity. It's not just about that. It, it it's about so much more, right? And and as we as 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 we as a club, club, you know, you know, stewards of the legend soccer club and the and training soccer legends approach, we have we we all have this responsibility and have been engaged in developing kind of four specific pillars that make up everything that we do and really define us as an organization. And the first one is is training soccer legends philosophy, what we talked about today. Specifically the and we've gone into great detail in the episodes previous, right? The one V ones, the two V twos, the Maestro, the box soccer, the shooting emphasis, right? That's training soccer lot legends. That's that's the specific, that's the what. And that's this book. That's that book, yeah. right? And and we will send our viewers Email us. A, a free PDF copy of this book. Yep, coaching you know, inside the box at gmail.com. Right. Um, so so we're not just talking, you know, you know, without having actually done it for years and years. And then, you know, we're not just people that have done it for years and we're let it going to die. We've produced the manual on how how we did it, you know, for everybody to evaluate and decide if you want to copy this, you know, or just, you know, take pieces of it. But whatever you do that's in this book will be massively beneficial, you know, to your players. Because we've experimented and failed many times in order to come up with what succeeded. Yes. Um, And next episode that we cover is going to be talking about Legends for Life, the leadership emphasis, and connecting that and interweaving that with some of the World Cup stars of the past. Because there's one thing that the three of us are always eager to chat about, and it's World Cup. It's, yep. it's World Cup Always. soccer, it's World Cup players, it's World Cup teams, it's World Cups of years past, um, uh, because it's the greatest it's the greatest event that exists um, on our planet. Um, so, Andy, Philippe, uh, another great episode, um, and uh, thanks. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you. Really appreciate it.